Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. Thanks for checking into the best Houston sports podcast. Robert, along with Sports Radio 610's Sean Bajani, 45 years in journalism between the two of us and over 35 covering Houston sports. If you're new to the party, that's what we're all about. We've got Astros, Texans, Cougars later on the show. But, Sean, we got to talk about the suddenly feisty Houston Rockets. They're 6-4 and four over their last 10 games with wins over the Bucks, Sixers, Hawks, and Suns twice in the last three weeks. Wow. I'm not going to tell you I'm surprised, man. We talked about this before the season. The over-under was at 24, and I said that's a lock. This team is going to do it. Now, granted, all right, their current pace should exceed that. Uh, but the pace they're on for the amount of games that they played thus far this season, they're actually on pace to uh, fall sh- just short of that. But, dude, this team is, like I said, it's, it's, it's athletic. It's fun to watch. They're starting to come together a little bit. And, you know, they're doing it against some really good competition. Now, look, I, I know the other night, um, you know, they were just kind of hit with injury and they were missing a lot of guys. The Phoenix Suns were, I don't think, no Booker, no Aiton um, after like for half of the game. Um, but, man, Jalen Green is starting to really ball out. He's, I think he's really showed over the last, I'd say, handful of games an interest in really taking his time and letting the game come to him instead of just kind of forcing things. So I'm excited about that. And I think too, when guys are playing so well away from the ball um, and and getting you second chance points, it's a little bit easier to do that. So I I can't say I'm surprised by this recent run. Yeah. I'm going to get to Jalen in a second, but the biggest storyline to me, Jabari Smith, he spent most of the bucks game guarding Giannis and he earned his nickname, the locksmith, because he held Giannis to 16 points, his lowest point total of the season. And trust me, it was Jabari on Giannis. Look at the tape. There's no way to appreciate it unless you watch the game. Meanwhile, he's shooting an extraordinary, listen to this, 46%, Sean, from three in his last 11 games. I was going to say, uh, I, I thought you were going to give me like the, the full season numbers, but because I would have believed it too. It's because of what he's really been doing of late. And look, some of those have been just some really good looks. Guys aren't respecting it. Um, but a lot of them have been contested shots, and the guy's just kind of calm, cool with the stroke. Um, I, I really am having a lot of fun watching him play. I can't say that I'm I'm really surprised because you and I talked about this, whether it was going to be Jabari Smith, whether it was going to be uh, Paolo Banchero, um, or – or however you say his name, and I'm glad he's not here, so I don't even have to really try to learn it. But, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I really thought, like, hey, the Rockets picking at three. I still felt like they got the number one overall pick in this draft. That's how highly I think of Jabari Smith, and I, I know Paulo's doing what he's doing, but um, Jabari is – his defense is, I think, what we all thought we would see early and often before I think his scoring kind of came around. Three-point shooting's taken a lot of people, I think, by surprise. Um, certainly what he's done over the last, uh, as you said, 9, 10, 11 games, I mean, the numbers are tremendous. I think he should continue to get those looks too, Robert, because is, if Jalen Green continues to do what he's doing, attack the basket, sucks defense in, the movement that we're seeing them play with a little bit more now, um, they're starting to get used to each other. And, I mean, that, that's something that I'm actually really excited about, and I'm glad we're seeing it because it's kind of pumped the brakes on – you know, get Silas the heck out of here conversation 
Um, I've always kind of been somebody in his corner and wanted to give him plenty of time. I, I still think it's warranted this season um, beyond it. Uh, if you're not happy with the growth, then maybe you have to move onward and upward. But I'm really happy for this team right now. Yeah, the Silas thing, that's a whole other conversation. And I am not ready to turn the heat off of Silas just quite yet. But the Rockets record at home, 6-5 and five, compared to 3-13 and 13 on the road. Why are they better at home? Two words. You mentioned him earlier. Jalen Green. At home, he averages 25 points on 50% shooting. On the road, 19 points on 36%. Ooh, stinky shooting. He also averages an extra rebound and an assist at home. So what I'm telling you, Sean, is home Jalen Green. Let's just call him home Jalen Green. That guy's an all-star. You know, look, I'd be interested in taking a little bit deeper dive in, in a look at this uh, on some younger players um, that really have a high ceiling. Um, I, I think you could look at it and kind of dumb it down to he's just a young, inexperienced player. You know, to be a true professional, it's preparation. It's bringing yourself mentally and physically, whether you're at home, on the road, every single day. I think that probably has a little bit to do with it. I don't know if that's something that you would really ever get him to admit to or the team to admit to. But I, I do think if you look back, I mean, you will see a little bit of a trend like that with some younger, talented players. Um, but just at the end of the day, they're young, they're inexperienced, and it's just going to come with repetition. So I, I, I think it's – I don't know if it's just as simple as a Jalen Green. I'm just talking about him, um, you know, particularly. But with this Rockets team, I mean, look, are they good enough outside of Jalen Green and Jabari Smith when he's hitting shots and he's blocking shots and playing tremendous defense to win games and to really be competitive uh, at home or even on the road, Robert? Not yet. Not yet. But, I mean, it's going to take some time, and I think we're starting to see that. I think they do become a better road team as the season goes along. I think that's the mark in another way in which we should grade um, Steven Silas and his coaching staff is getting this team, their guys prepared to play at home or on the road and keeping the same routine. That's, that's incredibly important. I, I don't know if that's being done right now. All right. We got a lot more rockets to talk uh, in Houston sports talk. We're going to get Frank on at some point in the next few days, the schedule between the rockets and our schedule has just been kind of crazy, but I'm going to have Frank to talk more rockets because there's a lot to talk about. There's one last thing, though, I want to hit on the Rockets, uh, Sean. The NBA naming their Defensive Player of the Year after Akeem Olajuwon. And, Sean, it's amazing that he only won two Defensive Player of the Year honors despite being the all-time blocks leader, ninth in steals, ninth for a center in steals. Okay, that's pretty incredible. 14th in rebounding. Sean, I looked up in 89-90. Dennis Rodman won the award. Akeem led the NBA that year in blocks with 4.6 per game. He averaged 2.1 steals, led the league with 14 rebounds. Rodman had 0.7 blocks, 0.6 steals, and 9.7 rebounds. I get it. Rodman was a really good one-on-one -on -one defender, but come on, man. Akeem Olajuwon, we can go through some of the other numbers. He deserved more than two of those awards. He did, but, you know, really, from what I remember, Robert, and granted, look, I, I was just kind of a kiddo. You know, I mean, I was 
a diehard Rocket fan at, you know, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 years old. I mean, it started very, very young for me, and I knew this team forward and backward. That era of of basketball seemed like we were really approaching. And look, maybe it was like this before. You could speak to this too, and I'm sure guys that followed the game in the 60s and 70s maybe could speak to it as well. But it really seemed like it was – Eh, let's spread the wealth kind of thing and maybe a popularity contest and who was playing in the bigger market for the better team. And, you know, look, if you just look at the numbers, you make a very good argument that Akeem Olajuwon should have finished his career with four MVPs, probably four defensive player of the year awards. I mean, he should have been really one of the more decorated players in history during his era, but he was blocked out by a lot of guys. You mentioned Rodman. Uh, David Robinson, I think, took another Defensive Player of the Year award away from him. I don't know if Patrick Ewing ever got one or not, um, but there there were other guys, you know, that that I would kind of, you know, if we could make a cross-sport reference to. Um, Jeff Bagwell was a tremendous first baseman, obviously, Hall of Famer, but who got a lot of the limelight? It was Fred McGriff, another very talented power-hitting first baseman in the National League with the Braves. Frank Thomas. Uh, him and Bagwell, I believe, shared the same birthday or inception into Major League Baseball date. Uh, Thomas got a lot more of the accolades and the attention than that of the Houston Astros and Jeff Bagwell. And I think it had to do something to with market. And that just seemed like that era it started to trend that way. Yeah, it was a lot of analytics that they weren't looking at. Like, you know, I just went through the numbers there. You, you got like a Michael Cooper winning one year. He had 0.5 blocks, 1.1 steals, and 3.1 boards, where Dream had 3.4 blocks, 1.9 steals, 11.4 boards. They were judging guys as individual defenders. Now I think the analytics guys realize you got to judge these guys with uh, team defense. Uh, also, uh, before we go on, I want to remind everybody to subscribe and comment on YouTube. It's the best way to support the show. Look for our live Texans post-game shows every game and this week it'll be close to around 4 30 and look, look for all the live shows by the way under the live tab on our youtube page or check your favorite podcast app and sean we're going to talk texans in a few minutes but man the twins signed one of our world series heroes christian vasquez to a three-year 30 million dollar deal the astros they are running out of catching options looks like one of the kids Corey lee or john or diaz will be the backup what do you see with the catching at this point? I, I've thought about it, and the Christian Vasquez signing really kind of caught me by surprise because I thought at the end of the day that was the Astros guy. You know, I thought, okay, Wilson Contreras, cool. Sean Murphy, cool. You know, these are kind of like pipe dream guys. They're going to be a little bit expensive. And sure, you're going to get, um, you know, an increase in, in uh, offense and stuff like that. But Boy, the whole time I'm thinking, you know what? Like, you forget about Christian Vasquez's career numbers before he became a Houston Astro, what they were. He was another proven, successful major league catcher. Um, and we saw what he could do behind the plate handling the staff once he kind of got, um, you know, his sea legs and used to this staff after a couple of weeks. I mean, he fit right in just like a glove. But at the plate, he never really put it together. Obviously, neither did Trey Mancini. And some of the other guys that the Astros brought up along the course of the season. I don't know even know if he wanted to be here, though, because he knew if he came back, it's Martin Maldonado's. I mean, we know what Dusty thinks about Maldonado. And Vasquez is one of those guys that 
you know, we'd heard rumblings that, yeah, look, he wants to play every single day. And that might have been, you know, part of the dismayed look we all remember whenever the trade was broken to him at Minute Maid Park. Like, hey, you're switching lockers, buddy. Uh, it's just down the hall on the left. Um, yeah, maybe, maybe that was certainly it. But I have to believe that for a guy who's, you know, career 270, 280 hitter, um, you know, has a little pop, can drive in some runs and obviously handle the staff would be a significant upgrade, would have warranted much more playing time as the Astros kind of phase Martin Maldonado out. That's kind of what I was expecting. So when he signed elsewhere, it caught me by surprise. Yonder Diaz, I don't know if that's what they want him to do. I don't know if that's what they project him to be the best at is a catcher behind the plate. And maybe he doesn't have to be. Maybe he's just a guy that uh, is is a platoon of sorts. Um, it's, it's a strong possibility. You know, Varsho, Dalton Varsho from the uh, uh, Diamondbacks, he's played catcher before too. Now, it's been a minute, okay, but he can play catcher. He can play outfield. Um, you know, he's one of those versatile guys that you feel pretty good about, and it's not really taking a step back defensively. But, you know, if it's Corey Lee, I just – I'm not I'm not impressed with him at all. I didn't like what I saw from him in – albeit a pretty small sample size this past season. I thought initially, like, he looked pretty strong at the plate for, you know, first couple of games. I liked the aggressiveness of his swing. Um, I liked his confidence. But he just didn't produce. And maybe with a full spring with the idea that, hey, this is kind of like my job to lose if, in fact, the Astros decide to go that route, maybe it's a little bit different because sometimes uh, situations like that can be beneficial. You know, we saw it enough for a number of guys, to be honest with you, Robert, in the 2020 season, the, the, the COVID-shortened year, and again, a season coming off of, you know, the cheating scandal in which, one, the Astros didn't have to deal with the fanfare and all of that crap with it. It allowed guys to kind of take a step back and deal with it just from a media standpoint on a computer, nonetheless, once spring training was over with, and then you know, they just kind of got to just be and relax and play in front of nobody with no pressure. And I think it could be something similar to that if Corey Lee was to, you know, be told if in fact that's how they go, hey, this is kind of like your opportunity. We're going to give you a lot of uh, shots at this thing, you know, to win this job. Go for it, big cat, and see what happens. I, I got to wait till spring training. But between now and then, I think that big signing, and there's not really any big signings left to be had, maybe like mid-tier, middle to a solid signing. Probably not going to come from a catcher. You know, I, I still think they're going to be looking at left field. Yeah, DH you're, combo. you're you're out of catching potential guys. So, and I'm not a Corey Lee fan. I would rather see what John or Diaz has got as far as a catch. I mean, they're a backup. We know if you get, once you get to the playoffs, assuming that you get there, Maldonado is the guy because uh, the other guys that were on the market. I mean, if you got a Contreras, that was the one maybe that you would have actually let start in the postseason. Um, the numbers in this, oh, they're just incredible what they're paying out. Carlos Correa, he played his cards right. He gets 13 years, $350 million from the Giants. He'll be 41 when the deal ends. These owners, Sean, they're throwing away money like they know global warming will end us before these players can finish off their contract. That's the only way I can explain it. What's going on? <laughs> I did some number crunching last night, and I'm trying to pull it up as I sift through all of my Texan tweets for the day. But in terms of, like, these contract numbers, all right, so here's one of them that I got for you. Including Carlos Correa's deal, 
There have been 11 free agent signings this offseason with contracts given out of five years or longer. The average age of the player at the end of those deals is 37.9 years of age. Five of those players that sign this offseason are going to be at least 40 by contract's end. One's going to be 41, and one's going to be 42. I'm fascinated by this. It's not just the amount of money that teams are spending, and it's a boatload. That's kind of my next thing that I want to look into in terms of like average annual value versus like rate of inflation and what these particular states are doing. And namely, it's kind of come down to California and New York. Well, it it seems like the ones that have kind of set the mark are the Phillies and the Mets. And those owners just don't seem to care. And when you get these guys at the high end doing what they're doing, it seems like it's pulling everybody else up. And maybe some of these owners just go, well, I don't know how much longer I'm going to own this team. It's not going to be forever. Oh. So I don't have to, I don't have to care about what they're going to, what, what, what's going on with these contracts five years down the road. But you shouldn't have cared and they haven't cared. I don't think for a very long time, the major league baseball has been operating, you know, with a $9 billion plus yearly revenue stream for a handful of years now, at least. And I think by the year 2026, when I read this a couple of years ago, it was forecasted to approach a $12 billion a year threshold. So Major League Baseball is making money. The owners, some of the crappiest teams in this league, they're making money. Don't let them fool you otherwise. They've got the money to spend if they hit a luxury tax. Nowadays, these owners in some of these bigger markets, more successful markets, obviously, are saying, you know what? So what? I don't care. We're relevant. We've got eyeballs on the product. People are buying the merch. People are filling the ballparks. That's what it's all about. It's a win-win, and it's almost a little bit of that Drayton McLean kind of philosophy. It's like, let's just stay competitive and sell championship to people. We're going to be champions. Well, you know, unless you've been the Houston Astros or the L.A. Dodgers or the Boston Red Sox over the course of the past decade, that's just not been the case, and it might not be the case for the foreseeable future because this should make you more proud than ever the job that Jim Crane and various general managers, and even himself or Jeff Bagwell included, whoever's been underneath him for the last decade, should make you very proud because they have not succumbed to the 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13-year contract and three, $400 million uh, salary for these guys. They've done it smart, but it takes the right guys. And whatever they're selling to these players, I'd really like to be a fly on the wall because Alex Bregman, who knows, Robert, what he could have commanded on open market, Altuve, Jordan. The interesting watch here is going to be Kyle Tucker. You know, is he the elite of the elite where he could fetch a 300 plus million dollar contract? That's going to be interesting to see. I, I'm just glad that, you know, the Astros, we, we don't need to go out and spend a zillion dollars to have an all-star at every position. I'm not worried about catcher. I'm not worried about outfielder at this point. I don't want to go trading some of our starting pitchers for an outfielder or a catcher. You just don't do that. Uh, Dusty knows that, I'm sure. Hopefully the rest of the Astros brass have, 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 have figured that out and aren't going to do something stupid like that. Um, we're going to talk some more Astros definitely within the next couple of weeks because I'm sure there's going to be some other shoes to drop potentially before spring training, but we'll find out. Let's move to the Cougs hoops because uh, I know you want to talk about uh, whose house and Cook's house, Sean. And after the loss to Bama, 
it's a little tough. They dropped from number one to number five in the poll. They were struggling to find a basket in the last 10 minutes against Bama. I wonder what you thought, because to me, it looked like Sasser's eye injury might have been a big deal. He was two of 11 from the field. Jarace Walker, who you'd hope could get some big buckets, you know, as, as a McDonald's All-American and as your, your hot freshman was a non-factor. I, I'm not sure. Maybe Kelvin Sampson doesn't trust him yet. Maybe they're not ready to, you know, have him take those big shots. But, you know, it just was interesting because even though he was three for four shot, it didn't appear like he was part of the offense. Yeah, no, I think it's a really good point. I can't remember if uh, Kelvin Sampson actually, after the game, um, commented on whether or not he thought Sasser's eye injury, the cut on the brow, was a factor or not. I know he spoke about the cut, but I don't know if he – I can't remember exactly if he'd said, like, yeah, that hurt us, you know, and kind of intimating that that was a thing. Well, let's be honest. The start I was not impressed with, you know, offensively, they had some good looks, and they missed shots early on. They kind of got put in a hole. They had to fight back a little bit. I, I get that. That's kind of old news. I mean, they ended up taking a 15-point lead in this ball game in the second half. And against another really good team, that's kind of when you've got to put your big boy pants on and figure out a way to hold on to that thing on your home court. That's a big deal. Um, defensively, I thought they got a little um, – you know, tired, a little fatigued, you know, at a certain point. And the way that they finished that game, I thought they just kind of put it all out there and were exhausted at the it, end. It would surprise me that you could out, uh, out fatigue the Cougars at home, the way Kelvin pushes those guys. I mean, if they got fatigued, that is not the Kelvin Sampson I know. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, look, I get it. It doesn't fit like the narrative, but I mean, let's be honest. I mean, you watch the game just as well as everybody else did. I mean, they played their butts off. And, you know, hustling around, scrambling for loose balls, trying to fight and take away second chance opportunities for Alabama. I mean, they were scratching and clawing for everything and look a little added anxiety and being on a big stage like that with another top 10 team coming in your house and knowing that you've got the target on your back as number one. I mean, that's going to take a little bit more out of you. And I think it did. I think it really hurt them on the offensive end because they missed some shots that they're typically making. You know, Shed was terrific, I thought, down the stretch, certainly offensively. Got them buckets when they needed buckets, man. But just a little careless with the basketball, cost them some possessions, the missed free throws um, by those two guys towards the end of the game. I mean, those are ones that you just absolutely have to have. And those can be heartbreakers. And unfortunately for them, you know, what Kelvin Sampson said a, a week or two, three weeks ago, really, since they uh, were finally, uh, they earned the number one spot in the country, he said it's a rental. It doesn't mean that they're not going to be number one again this season because my guess is they were on the map, they kept it, they were 3-0, and 4-0 and uh, as a number one team in this country, and they're going to be playing some good basketball. They'll have another opportunity to knock off a uh, – a top 15, top 20 opponent here in the next, uh, within the next week or so. So we'll see what happens. What is it about Kevin Sampson's teams and missed free throws? Sean? It just seems like that's so, uh, that's so uh, Houston Cougars these days. It, it's tough, man. You know, free throws, you know, it's something that um, I, I kind of, I kind of always, I take personally, you know, so to speak, because I think that is an element of the game that can go, uh, overlooked and so often does at various levels. And I remember talking about it for so many years with the Houston Rockets. And I was always fascinated by the way that teams, particularly professional teams, practice their free throws. And one of the things that I never really understood, 
you know, with the Rockets, and I covered them for about 10 straight years. Not once did I ever witness, and we got a chance to see generally about 15, 20 minutes the tail end of practice uh, with Jeff Van Gundy, and I can't remember under Kevin McHale um, and Rick Adelman's tenure, but I, I, I never heard from players or witnessed myself them stopping practice and going free throws. Now, why would you do that? You're worn out. You wear yourself out, and that's how you're going to have to do it in a game. That's what happens in the course of a game. And one of the things that I always found fascinating was a lot of these players, the bigger guys that struggle really with the touch, the finesse-type shots that a free throw really is after you've been going 100 miles per hour up and down a court, is get away from the line. Take a step back because your shot at that point is going to be a little bit stronger and a little bit flatter than it typically would be when you're fresh and you're cold. There's going to be a little bit more arc. You're going to be a little bit colder. You're going to accentuate the elbow and your form a little bit more. But when it's bam, 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 you need to take a step back because you've got that extra juice flowing through your um, through your bones. And so I, I think those things are coachable. And I, I hope that it is those little things. And look, if it is a Kelvin Sampson coach team that we're talking about, and it is, then he will fix those little things and seize the opportunity for what is one of the more um, obviously exciting moments, important moments at the University of Houston a- athletically with this basketball program this year. They can do some special things. Another huge game this weekend at with Virginia. I mean, that's going to be a big showcase for them as well. Uh, lots of good with the Cougars. Lots of great with the Astros. Lots of good with the Rockets. Let's get to the Texans now. And the reason many people were still having fun watching the Texans was Damian Pierce, Sean. He's out for at least a couple of games, if not the rest of the way, high ankle sprain. If he played his last game this year, uh, or if he played uh, until the end of the season, uh, then at at this moment, at the pace he's on, he finishes with 939 yards. It would go to 1,200 yards on the season. Uh, for his rookie year, 4.3 yards per carry, five touchdowns, you know, give him another touchdown or two. Um, He had the fifth most attempts when he went down and the seventh most rushing yards in the NFL. I mean, you can't ask for more from Damian Pierce. And I I have a feeling this is the last week we've seen him. It's pretty incredible. Like I, I can't remember the last NFL team that was the worst in the league on a particular season that had one of the best skill position players on it. Statistically speaking, uh, ceiling-wise, just so much promise with a young player like Damian Pierce. And the fact that you know people have washed their hands um, with this team this year and they're missing out on Damian Pierce, it's a, it's a shame, to be quite honest with you, because he's been a blast to watch. Like, I can't believe I've really have this opportunity to cover him uh, on the day-to-day. He's he's a great guy to talk to, great guy to watch play. He's tough. Um, he, he he gets hurt. He wants to go right back in. You saw him test the ankle against the Cowboys, got it taped up, and then just – if he can't go, then it's a thing. And you're right. He's probably going to miss uh, a couple of games. It's been already reported as such that Lovey Smith today, I guess, to keep that competitive advantage, um, didn't want to do that. He'd said – We'll start with this first. If Damian can't go, 
and then went on. So look, Pierce is probably not going to go. He, along with a number of other Texans, didn't practice today. They weren't even seen on the field um, with the couple of usuals that hadn't been there the last couple of four weeks. And Derek Stingley, who's missed four straight games. Brandon Cooks, who's missed two straight. Justin McCray, who missed the Cowboys game, of course. Uh, he was doing some work on a side field. But yeah, no Damian Pierce. That means you're going to be looking at Rex Burkhead, Daria Gumbawale. We've got Jared Dokes in there on the practice squad. He was getting reps of practice today along with Royce Freeman. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if, in fact, we saw Royce Freeman elevated to the active roster. But just given the fact that Daria's been playing so much special teams that he might be forced into action and get a bulk of the carries um, with Damian Pierce out, I wouldn't be surprised if Royce Freeman got some of the special teams reps that Dari's used to getting, but um, I'll, I'll, I should be able to find that out, um, you know, towards the end of this week, and I'll let you know. It looks like we're going to see the QB combo again, the uh, poo-poo platter of Jeff Driscoll and Davis Mills, right? Poo-poo platter? Do him a solid. It was a little bit better than I that. I like that was... a poo-poo platter. It's a, that's a good meal right there. That made it entertaining to watch. Um you know, that that really was it. That made it entertaining to watch. You know, when when Jeff Driscoll, um, you know, the first time that he pulled the ball down and ran off the read option, whether it was a true read or a true keep, whatever it was, it worked. And that opened up uh, things for Pep's offense, um, the scramble, the rollout. You thought he was going to pull it down and uh, keep it and then fired a, a great ball to Amari Rogers to catch his first touchdown of the season with the Texans after being here for almost a month in the system. I mean, that was fantastic to see. So um, look, they had three, three and outs um, in that game against the Cowboys. Only four other times um, this season had the Texans had three, three and outs or fewer in games. Um, and because their defense was just good enough, though, not from a run defense standpoint, again, unfortunately, that made that much more palatable to watch and entertain. And I, I think don't expect to see, and this is just my opinion, don't expect to see an even split uh, between Mills and Driscoll against Kansas City. But I would certainly anticipate um, seeing Driscoll um, quite a bit once again. Um, I would be shocked if he didn't get, you know, 30, 35, 40% even uh, of the snaps offensively in this game against Kansas City. I think that needs to happen if they want any realm of success with the run game because with no Pierce, that hurts the effectiveness of what Driscoll brings in those packages when he's on the field is that run element. And the guy that actually is capable of doing it, there's two of them. I think Dari's a good, strong, powerful runner, downhill speed. And I think Royce, um, what little we saw from him in preseason, he's shown the ability um, to be successful too. Uh, with a similar style. So I, I'd be interested to see if Royce gets an opportunity. Certainly, I would anticipate Dari being that guy. I know this is going to depress Texans fans a little bit, but I know that the Texans were actually very high on Patrick Mahomes, who we're going to see on Sunday. And it sounds like if Deshaun Watson was not on the board, the Texans still would have made that trade with the Browns to move up and get Patrick Mahomes. And what a sliding doors moment that is in Texans history. I hate revisionist history because it can be depressing sometimes when you think about guys that you could have had, should have had, um, you know, the what if game. It's painful. I mean, we could play the what if game like, and not, I mean, it's like, it would be like Monopoly. Have you ever finished a game of Monopoly? No, of course not. Nobody has in the history of the world. It's like the what if game here in the city of Houston. You'd never finish it. I mean, you could go decade after decade after decade. Um, yeah, man, Patrick Mahomes, that'd be pretty sweet. Um 
I was thinking about this actually earlier today. Bryce Young, consensus number one overall pick to the Houston Texans, right? That's pretty much what everybody's thinking. Or since you have two number ones this time, do you go defensive player and then take a quarterback later? It's the same conversation we had once upon a time ago when Vince Young and Mario Williams were in the same draft along with who else? Wasn't it Reggie Bush in that same draft? And it was like, ah, who are you going to go? Are you going to go quarterback, running back, defensive end? What's it going to be? Well, the Texans went defensive end. And obviously from that personal standpoint, it worked out okay. But man, what could have been if VY was doing VY things in a Houston Texans uniform as opposed to a Tennessee Titan uniform crushing the Texans every time he saw fit. I don't want to miss out on two youngs in one lifetime. So I just, that was a thought in my mind today. And I know we'll talk plenty more about the quarterback situation and the draft coming uh, up April 27th, but I just had to get that out of my system. Yeah. Just for the record, I was one of the few people that was not high on Reggie Bush for sure. And I just didn't see it with Vince Young. It turns out, you know, Mario was all right, but he wasn't a generational guy. So there wasn't that right pick. You know, the, the first few picks of that draft were very odd, but I, I never was angry at them or I just didn't get what people were seeing in Reggie Bush and, Reggie Bush and Vince Young because I just didn't trust Vince Young's passing and Reggie Bush. I, I knew that's a running back that didn't look like he was going to be able to last with the size that he played at. And that explosiveness that you see sometimes in college just doesn't translate to the NFL unless you can break tackles. And Reggie Bush was not one of those type of guys. Um, last last word real quick, Sean. Um, have you had a chance to talk to my guy, Jalen Petrie? Did we work on that? Did you work on tackling technique with him at all? What's going on with that? I was ready for it. I was ready to talk to him today, but uh, the locker room was pretty sparse um, for the uh, afternoon session. Did not see him. Um, I told you this the other day, the one guy I've not seen in the locker room at all this season was Blake Cashman. And you know who was hanging out, chopping it up with members of the media today? Blake Cashman for about 10, 15 minutes. And that was about the extent of our uh, uh, locker room session with the players. I think Dari spoke. I got him um, and a couple other guys. But no, Petrie should be available tomorrow. So I will definitely holler at him and teach him how to tackle. That's a good idea. Uh, let me remind everybody that we got a really good guest coming up next week. The plan is, and I have talked to the party in, well, not in person, but I have talked to her and she's going to be on the show. We're going to have somebody on the ringer from the ringer website and podcast network that has spoken and has been around Bryce young and has written a story about it. We're going to talk, I think sometime next week. So look for that in the next couple of weeks, a good interview with her about what's going on with Bryce Young and who's who he is and what he's about because most likely he's going to be a Texan next year that is the consensus at the moment but we will see uh Sean you and I are going to do this again on Sunday after a Texans game and god willing it's going to be close but we'll Don't hold your breath <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to Houston Sports Talk. Hey, you can support the show by subscribing on YouTube and commenting on the videos. Listen to Houston Sports Talk on Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, and Google. Don't forget to tell a friend and share our show on social media. Spread the word, everybody. Thanks for listening.